Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. One of the greatest changes to healthcare in the last decade or so in Canada has been the introduction of patient-centered care, or as HSO and we ourselves at CHA Learning define it, people-centered care. Because it encompasses the experience and perspective of all members of a care team, not just patients, but residents, families, and caregivers as well. At its core, it turns the patient from a passive receiver of care and treatment to a partner. Indeed, I'd even go so far as to say that people-centered care is transformational because instead of seeing a person and their loved ones through the lens of their illness or healthcare needs, it pushes us to see them as the human beings they are, with a full life of experiences, feelings, strengths, knowledge, opinions, and unique needs and preferences. This change is far from a fait accompli. And like most changes of this magnitude, it will take more than a decade to do this work, for indeed, it impacts every aspect of our health system, from the way that clinicians are taught and interact with patients, to the way our facilities and services are designed, to the way we collect and share information, to the organizational cultures fostered by boards and leaders. And there is the pandemic, which has impacted so much of this progress. It has certainly shown how fragile this change has been, itself threatened and challenged by lockdowns and limits on visitation and the participation of families in their loved ones' care. Few Canadians have been untouched by the stories and images of vulnerable seniors struggling and dying in isolation from their families. So while over the past few episodes, we have importantly focused a lot on the people who deliver and run our healthcare system and the impact the pandemic is having on them, today, I want to focus on the people our systems serve and discuss the impact the pandemic is having on the patient experience and this bigger culture change that still remains unfinished. Joining me in this conversation is Leslie Moody, Clinical Director of Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. Leslie has truly made person-centred care the focus of an amazing career. And previous to this role, Leslie was the Director of Person-Centred Care at Cancer Care Ontario, where she oversaw a number of programs provincially, including patient-reported outcomes, psychosocial oncology, patient education, patient engagement, patient-reported experience measurement, and quality initiatives. Leslie has led the advancement of patient experience and patient and family engagement programs from both the local and the system levels. And before this, she managed one of Ontario's regional cancer programs. She's also led the development of a province-wide practice guideline and indicator framework for person-centered care. And Leslie's earned her MBA from McMaster University and completed a PhD in health policy at the University of Toronto, where she was researching, problem-solving, decision-making in cancer care. Hi, Leslie, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you here today and to have a conversation about this really important topic. So maybe we can start, you know, with sort of the questions that I was asking at the outset here and, and really talk about how has the pandemic impacted Princess Margaret's ability to deliver patient-centered care? Sure. I, I think it's both positively and negatively impacted our ability to uh, deliver person-centered care at Princess Margaret. Being uh, Canada's quaternary cancer centre that is dedicated solely to oncology care, we do have the benefit of really tailoring 
our care to the individual and to that population. Mm-hmm. So some of those tensions that maybe a, a full uh, run of the gamut cancer or non-cancer center like hospital might have, uh, we actually have the ability to hone in on the one kind of clinical program. So for us over the pandemic, we've seen definitely some some wins and some losses in the person-centered care kind of uh, strive to move to a fully integrated uh, cancer center that is dedicated to tailoring that care to the individual. So I'll give you an example. Um, The loss of our um, essential care partners or patients being able to bring a visitor with Mm -hmm. them. If you can put yourself in the shoes of of a cancer patient, imagine how distressing that would be to come to a cancer center without uh, a loved one or a caregiver by your side. This was very distressing for both patients and our providers uh, because they know the toll that some of these conversations, decisions, treatment decisions, and yeah. visits can have. Um, so out of that, uh, we tried to do many things to improve a more person-centered experience or patient experience um, with some of those constraints. And a lot of great things came out of that. So things we'd been trying to do for years, like integrate lay navigators mm-hmm. beyond our beyond our uh, lovely volunteers in the cancer center, but actually formalize a kind of a lay navigator role or integrating technology for patients. So before the pandemic, I would say it was rare that we integrated an iPad into an appointment so mm-hmm. that a loved one could tune in. You know, not everybody lives locally. Um, and so pre even prior to the pandemic, people weren't joining those appointments. But now that's standard. So are will anybody be joining on on um, your iPhone or your or um, on WhatsApp video, um, if even on the outpatient side. And on the inpatient side, we had a number of uh, incredible donors that uh, enabled iPads for patients on the inpatient unit so that they could keep in touch with their family members during some of the very tumultuous times over the course of the pandemic, where there was no visitors allowed in the cancer center. Um, and so I think with each one of those kind of policy uh, that we had to contend with in terms of the unknowns around the pandemic, we were able to actually push the envelope from a person-centered care perspective. Uh, Things we'd been trying to do for a very long time that we were finally able to have the momentum to to move forward. So I think uh, like on each side, we had pluses and minuses for improving the patient experience over the course of the pandemic. And it helped us accelerate a lot of things that we'd been trying to do. So, yeah, I'm curious about the, the lay navigator part of that, what you've described here. Um, could you just provide a bit more context for what that is and how it works? Sure. In the Cancer Center, we've always had incredible teams of uh, volunteers. Mm-hmm. And with the pandemic, um, we had to remove the volunteers from the Cancer Center. So no volunteers and no essential care partners coming with uh, the patients to their appointments, you can imagine that would be very difficult to get help people move uh, to their appointments. 
move through a, a typical oncology visit. Often you're meeting with multiple providers. You have multiple locations to get to. Mm -hmm. So we have um, a couple programs that we were able to move to both on-site and virtual. So for example, we have a program called Healing Beyond the Body. We were able to have these um, lay um, lay navigators or what uh, there's many terms you could use but these healing beyond the body um, team members that could actually help patients virtually navigate the system we also capitalized on the requirement of the province to have door screeners checking for symptoms and risk factors of covid at, at, at every entry yeah. to cross train them to be essentially like person-centered care representatives at the at concierge service, <laughs> if you will, Neat. at the front of the cancer center, because it was very daunting to for patients to be asked all of those questions on every appointment. Cancer patients in general often fear missing their appointments or not getting to their next treatment. And they already have a lot of clinical-based things that could prevent them, like their blood counts and their um, how they're tolerating the medications. That they, It's a known sort of phenomenon where cancer patients have a real fear that they're not going to get to their next treatment to keep on their treatment plan. So the door screening and the introduction of uh, required vaccinations and things like that were all additional fear kind of touch points. Yeah. So we wanted to shift that experience, knowing that we had to comply with that for everyone's safety, for staff and other patient safety, but to make it a more positive patient experience. So more like the last question where I was responding is like anything that was kind of imposed um, as a policy or requirement or shift for the pandemic, we were really trying to look at that. How do we improve the patient experience with this implementation? So our door screeners are incredible. They trade off each other at the door to be able to take patients to their appointments, to follow up on any questions they might have. There was a lot around vaccination and unknowns at the various waves of the pandemic. We had a, a telephone line with our navigators where they patients could call and we would link them and help book them for their vaccinations um, throughout the province, wherever they live. They would also help them organize the technology as well. So they would spend time with them. Uh, lending them an iPad and helping them link to their family during their appointment. So anything that we could do with the current uh, requirements, we were trying to flip and make sure was the best possible patient experience with all of those roles. Our screening team is fantastic. And actually, as we move off of um, the requirements for screening in the province, we're looking to see how we maintain that workforce because it has made such a difference in the patient experience from the moment they walk into the center and being able to contact the center for help. But having a, a telephone number, a helpline for helping them navigate some of the COVID requirements like vaccines and testing, things like that. So the, the screeners, you say adding them to your workforce, so they're not volunteers or they're, they're employees or, or where, do they, where are they coming from, I guess? Yeah, so the screeners are paid uh, employees 
um, that were uh, mandated and required as part of the pandemic for both active staff and patient caregiver screening at the door. So it was a Ministry of Health directive in the province. Um, and then the Healing Beyond the Body are actually uh, volunteers. So many of them are past patients themselves that go through a rigorous training and they function as uh, lay navigators and counselors to within their scope of non-clinical to help patients based on their previous lived experience. Uh, so it's a combination of both. So there's both paid and unpaid roles um, that we've uh, made sure that we can keep uh, post the pandemic. And are the, the screeners, are they like uh, other health professionals or students or things like that that are coming in? Or are they just, yeah, other people looking for work? I would say the vast majority are students of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, it started as staff that were redeployed. So when research in the province was um, was really cut back at the beginning waves of the pandemic, a lot of them were our research staff. Mm-hmm. We quickly realized that research was going to ramp back up with some of the openings over the course of the different waves. And so we then hired into that workforce based on the ministry directive. And it is it is a wide array of people, but I would say the vast majority are students. Um, a lot of them are in um, health-based fields mm-hmm. uh, that are interested in, in getting the experience in the hospital and the cancer centre. Um, but but there are people where uh, they applied for and um, were looking for employment at the time. Well, I, I think I, I can imagine that if, you know, this was a like if the student was like a, an RN or a med student or any other health professional, that it, it's a great introduction in terms of um, developing that patient engagement and uh, um, sort of approach to things that would inform their own healthcare practice later on in their careers. I I totally agree. And they really, um, they're an exceptional group of people. They, they had to learn the role on the fly. Uh, They had to really recognize their role as part of the patient experience, a key piece of the patient experience. And over the, over the months and years now, um, they have really evolved the role, even their standard operating procedures for how they help a patient. Two of them daily are sent out as safety coaches through the building and they do sweeps through the building to make sure people have uh, physically distant space to have a bite to eat or get a coffee in the in their very long days. Some, some days for cancer patients can be eight, nine hours with mm-hmm. their doctor's appointment plus their treatment. They ensure people are masking appropriately, de-escalating any conflicts. There's been a number of conflicts with uh, the vaccine mandate and and verifying Mm -hmm. that at the door. Um, They also even, they run up, simple as this is, they will run up the Uber Eats order um, and because they know the patients are are waiting for this and maybe too unwell. They've really become to know all of our patients um, that are in the inpatient units as well um, to help them um, as simple as as uh, uh, nourishment and a, and a different meal than than hospital food as you know that's probably not uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the the jewel in the crown for the Ontario hospital system but um, you know when you're trying to heal you kind of want um, maybe something that you're really looking for from a food perspective. So they, as simple as that, they've taken on that role um, in the various waves. 
Right. It's it's all very, very inspiring. And I think a lot of what I'm hearing, I guess that what connects it for me is, um, you, you know, you and your your team and organization taking a certain way, uh, an approach that is, you know, the glass is not half empty, there's half, half full, or there's a, you know, there's a silver lining to all these things and, and change, broadly speaking, represents an opportunity. Um, and in each of those, you've seized it to do something better to enhance the your your delivery of care and your services so uh it's a it's very inspirational so thank you um so maybe just sort of talking about how that has in fact impacted your staff and their own wellness too we've in some of our other episodes here we've talked a little bit about that as well and and obviously the uh the impact of the pandemic on on, on our healthcare workforce, what have you been seeing at, at Princess Margaret and uh, as, as an oncology center? I, I think we've we've had some of the similar challenges that other organizations have in terms of how I like to describe it is healthcare workers or anybody working in the center or the hospital have not only had to have this pandemic happen to them in their personal lives with school kids, young kids in school, caring for elderly patients, that fear of, of keeping your friends and family safe. Uh, but they also have to do that at work. And so to me, they're a bit of um, uh, a workforce that is kind of squeezed at all angles in terms of the pandemic. And we've certainly seen uh, their well-being uh, and burnout scores to be pretty pervasive and pretty high in oncology. Firstly, oncology is dealing with a pretty um, challenging patient population to begin with, mm-hmm. very immunocompromised. So the fear of you know, having COVID come into our cancer center um, and have an outbreak, for example, was on everybody's mind. Um, in fact, we we're the only one of the only acute centers in all of Ontario that never had a COVID outbreak uh, over the whole two years, uh, knock on wood. Um, and I think, you know, our staff are very committed and very passionate about, you know, uh, oncology and cancer care and, and doing the best by our patients. But at the same time, this pandemic was happening to them as well. Mm-hmm. And they really had no escape from that. It's both their full professional life and their full personal life for the last two years. So we have done a number of initiatives. Firstly, we measured a well-being index uh, for our, our all of our staff that wanted to participate. It wasn't mandatory, but we did have a very high participation rate. Mm-hmm. And it showed uh, pretty concerning and high levels of burnout. So we've since... And is that across all the professions or... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, across all, across the board. Um, And so we've done a number of initiatives to try to look at what does wellness look like to the various various profession profession types and teams. So we work in a very interdisciplinary group. For example, our psychiatry team over the course of COVID not only cared for their patients, but they were each assigned to one of our units on the inpatient and outpatient side so that we had uh, an ability to have compassionate debriefs, 
talk about burnout, talk about their wellness and see what we could do. We have a, a to improve things. We so they were providing services to your, to their staff or their colleagues. Yeah. Yes. Which is unprecedented. Obviously, you know, in Ontario healthcare system, we're always looking for more resources and for them to then split their time and be on call for their unit. It was incredibly helpful. Um, because a lot of that, the beginning, all of the unknown was leading to a lot of fear and anxiety in the in the public. But then, as already mentioned, uh, for our staff, doubly so because they're part of the public and staff member in the in the hospital system. There's a lot in the in the media as well around kind of healthcare heroes and things like that. And oncology's always been very particular in our culture uh, to not. Uh, take on that um, persona, if you will. Mm-hmm. We've always been, had um, a culture where we, you know, where we serve our patient population. We're privileged to be entrusted with their care. And we don't, most people, I would say, in the oncology uh, sphere, don't ascribe to that sort of healthcare hero um uh, dialogue, if you will, or rhetoric. And, and so that at the beginning of the pandemic was very strong in the media. Um, and even just in the public with everybody's signs in their windows and, you know, and I think in oncology, that was, that was very difficult, um, because we aren't an acute care center, but we're also ensuring that we're keeping princess Margaret as COVID free as possible. So um, it was an interesting, an interesting um, dynamic. Back to the well-being, though, piece. I think we've ha- we have a fantastic foundation that provided a lot of support, and I know we're very fortunate to have that. I know it's pretty unique compared to many uh, hospitals or cancer centers, and so it'd be remiss if we didn't uh, explicitly call them out to thank them for all that they've done around uh, well-being, but. Our managers as well work individually with their staff to figure out what would be meaningful to them. Is it childcare? Mm-hmm. Is it a meals brought in? Is it the psychiatrists that were assigned to the units? What is it that would help? Because well-being is such a unique to each individual what they need for their well-being. Um, so we did it. We've done a lot of that work, and we're still continuing on on that in terms of addressing the well-being index and the levels of burnout. It is not. It was not sort of a one-time check. We fixed it. It's still persistent and ubiquitous, and and I don't think we can take our eye off that. Um, and that I think is here for a little while before we improve some of those levels because we have to get back to all of the backlog and there's been no real break, right? There's been no kind of celebration of the end of the pandemic and move forward. It's just constant. Yeah. Every time we think there's a break, it just something else seems to happen. So, so how does, I mean, so building on that, I mean, how does that impact, I guess, the delivery of care and services? I mean, does it, I mean, Notwithstanding all the, the incredible innovations and the commitments of, of your team, um, do you see it out having, an, um, I guess, a, a negative, if I can say you know, that word, um, impact in terms of how you would otherwise have wanted to deliver some of your services? 
I, two things come to mind to, to, in that vein. One, um, we've had a mass exodus in uh, nursing Mm-hmm. In the internationally, not it's not local to Ontario or Princess Margaret or Canada. Even we've seen a mass exodus of uh, nursing from the profession, and I think that withstanding two years of the pressure of the pandemic, now teams are functioning very short on a daily basis, and that is taking a toll for the people left that have not. Um, left the profession. So from a nursing perspective, you know, reading the reports and the projections, it's anticipated that this shortage will go on for years. Mm -hmm. So we've had to become quite innovative in terms of our recruitment, recruiting people before their licensing, and ensuring that we have a very strong um, retention of our students so that we can foster a very safe environment to practice in so that we don't lose people early on in their career. Because there's a statistic that uh, I think students uh, after their consolidation will leave within the first year of the profession if they don't feel supported in -hmm. a clinical environment. So we've had to really pivot from that perspective in terms of how we deliver care, team-based care, um, and looking at our complement in different provider types on the inpatient side, especially given our shortages. So taking a look at that whole interdisciplinary team, what is the complement of staff that we have in this shortage and how do we deliver care in a very complex patient population? From an outpatient perspective, we were able to move the major, the at the beginning of the pandemic, a, a good majority of our patients to virtual. Now that's had both positive and negative um, in aspects to it. From a care team perspective, at the beginning, it took us a while to figure it out. Mm-hmm. How do we still? How do we create the clinic outside of the clinic in a virtual based model? How do we integrate our learners, so our fellows and residents? How do we integrate the important role of the specialized oncology nurse? How do we ensure that all of our support services that we're so lucky to have in terms of allied health, the involvement of pharmacy and social work, dietitians, et cetera, in care, how do we do that in the virtual setting? Because we've still, two years later, maintained more than a third of our visits as virtual because there's quite a high patient satisfaction with virtual care in, in some very specific areas of oncology, not when you're on treatment, but your long-term follow-up when you're, when you're doing your annual check-ins, for example, you could go, yeah, you could go close to home for your blood work or your imaging and then have a virtual visit and not have to take a day off work, park, very expensive downtown Toronto parking. Um, and, um, you know, it's not a very long appointment usually in follow-up all for maybe a 15 minute appointment. So that has been hugely positive. But the difficulty is ensuring that you have that interdisciplinary care that oncology is so rooted in, in the virtual setting. So I think in terms of kind of the long-term picture of this, we've had to be very nimble in terms of our models of care. So in in view of of a nursing shortage, and then in terms of 
how we deliver care virtually or in person. So whether it's inpatient or outpatient, we're constantly learning and evolving. There's is never a static moment um, in, over this course of this two years. And I think that too has had an impact on the pay, on our workforce as well as our patients because they obviously are adapting, the patients are adapting as well to these changes uh, as we are. So that's definitely uh, top of mind for us to continue to address um, in terms of the volume of change, the pace of change, and sort of the relentlessness of the change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not much more to say about that, but it just, um, but you have, you know, discussed a little bit throughout our conversation uh, around the data that you've been measuring and monitoring at various different levels. So what does the data say about the patient's personal experience? I mean, what are they reporting? Um, and has it changed things like, you know, patient safety, which is a, I know it's a broad term, but any sort of observations in terms of what your data and, and metrics might be saying in that? Yes. Uh, so we measure Your Voice Matters uh, as well. We modified Your Voice Matters to include uh, virtual care satisfaction, satisfaction with the virtual care um, very quickly because we have such a high um, volume of virtual care in the center. So if we typically would have around 2,000 appointments a day, we're maintaining about 30, 35% daily virtual. So it's a high volume of, of care occurring both in person and uh, via telephone or video conference. So we measure Your Voice Matters. It uh, functions as a real-time patient experience measurement for outpatient oncology. It looks at all the domains of patient experience from being able to contact the center to your uh, having all the information and knowing the next step in your care. We saw a shift in our patient experience data over the course of the pandemic where COVID, obviously COVID and COVID protocols bumped to the top of some of the uh, poor patient experience, being able to bring a caregiver, uh, not understanding uh, how to contact the center. As you can imagine, with a lot of admin assistants and doctor's offices working from home, mm -hmm. there was a, a lot of a gap, uh, a big gap there. Um, we have always historically seen uh, high degrees of, of respect for patient preferences, and that was maintained over the course of the pandemic. But wait times has bubbled to the top. So not wait times to enter care. There's provincial standards for that that we maintain. But wait times to see your provider. Mm -hmm. That has really ballooned um, over the course of the pandemic because staff shortages, trying to combine virtual and in-person appointments in the same grid. We give people a three-hour window for their virtual appointment because we didn't have a sophisticated system at the beginning to do that. Um, and so um, I think that that is a change in terms of um, what has bubbled to the top of one of the poorest patient experiences is the wait time to see your provider, whether virtual or in person. Historically, over the course of the, since we started measuring the patient experience in oncology in 2004 for the whole province, historically, emotion, provision of emotional support has always been the lowest. It has 
maintained a poor level of patient experience over the course of the pandemic, but this wait time issue and COVID protocols did bubble to the top over the, which was a shift that we hadn't seen um, previously prior to the pandemic where provision of emotional support was always the lowest. So we struck a patient experience during COVID committee. That's where some of the things we talked about earlier in the podcast were related to uh, trying to see the glass half full and flip, flip any of the mandates or requirements as how can we shift this to a positive patient experience. Um, and we actually developed um, significant improvements around virtual care based on the patient feedback. So we have this measurement tool. Um, it's both um, a survey instrument, but we also analyze in depth the qualitative comments. And we actually um, developed a role because at the end of the survey, we give them an email, a direct link to us. At the beginning, when we implemented that, myself and another colleague were actually answering every email coming in. But soon, wow. um, <laughs> patients, yeah, soon it became <laughs> overwhelming. And patients really did see that as a way that their feedback was actually being heard and actioned. Mm -hmm. And so then we got more and more feedback that we implemented a role Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, with actually it is she happens to have an, a nursing background um, and she also works as a crisis worker so she's very good with with following up on both negative and positive uh, patient feedback and she actually manages that whole inbox and we do a warm handoff with patient relations if it's uh, if it's negative feedback that we can't resolve in the moment and we also pass along to our teams the positive feedback so that people are getting specific um, feedback in a, in a feedback loop uh, right down to the unit level or the provider level. So the introduction of that role was also novel and we've been trying to do something like that for years. But again, the pandemic helped us catalyze some of these things because of that rapid pace of change and just an acceptance that we needed to evolve. Yeah. And that role has been incredible. Yeah, you can see the value in it, and but by trying it out, I mean, I guess it reinforces for you what is important to your your patients and families, and right. So, um, and yeah, information is so valuable in terms of how we continue to get better. So, um, so you've you talked a little bit about over the space of the pandemic and things changing. So, I mean, I know that in terms of the media and what we had, would observe, right? I mean, we've gone through periods, I think, as you've described at the beginning, right, where our um, healthcare uh, professionals certainly were viewed as these heroes, and there was a great public outpouring of support for our essential um, um, service providers across the, the country. Um, and then we, you know, flash forward to you know, here in Ottawa, watching, you know, convoys and people protesting and, and right, the, the changes in the way our public has perceived healthcare um, is synonymous with mandates, I guess. But what does it look like for you? And have you seen a change in terms of um, the way people are interacting um, with each other? Yeah, we've had, I would say, over the course of the pandemic, some of the most beautiful examples of humanity and some of the worst mm -hmm. <laughs> examples of humanity. 
you know, with any kind of anxiety, fear, change, you know, it brings out the positive and negative in us as humans. I think um, in large part, people have banded together to support one another, to help bring back some of that sense of connectedness, like even the physical barrier of a mask was leading to a lack of connectedness between our team members and our patients. And I think, you know, simple things with getting your picture of what you look like without a badge um, for our radiation therapists, for example, so that patients know what they look like. Um, Helping um, each other with, you know, maybe childcare challenges, things like that, with ensuring that people were getting linked to some of the resources. I think it's brought out very positive things, collegiality and and attempts to promote connectedness where people were feeling this disconnect. But I think there's also been some difficult moments with the public at the, at the doors. Um, our screeners are, you know, trained in de-escalation and they do a fantastic job, but I have to say they put up with a lot. Mm-hmm. If you're denying someone to come in with a caregiver at various points in the pandemic, um, you know, we have um, a palliative care unit here, for example. Uh, normally, in non-COVID times, you would have your entire family with you for end of life. You know, we had to restrict that to kind of a couple people, um, two people at the beginning of the pandemic, which was even more lenient than a lot of the other hospices and palliative care units. Um, and, and that led to a lot of conflict. So some of these high stress situations, again, you'd see some of the best of humanity and some of the worst of humanity, and it has ebbed and flowed. And I think that for the most part, we work in a very respectful and collegial environment. But when we were going through some tough times, in terms of, um, in terms of that lack of connectedness, the lack of social interaction for people, I think we did have some difficult moments in various pockets, and we've had to work through that. And we have good policies and procedures to do that, but I think honestly, a lot of it just comes down to people feeling that they can connect as a team, um, and that they're part of an interdisciplinary team. And that we're all here for the same reason, which is to serve our our patients that are entrusted to our care. And we're just getting back to that, I'd say, Dale, because I think it's now people feel like they can kind of breathe a little bit and come Mm -hmm. out of this because in their personal life, they're starting to build some of that back. So that well of resiliency is, is kind of rebuilding slightly. And then people have a little bit more room for that in the workplace as well. Again, sandwiched group. They are dealing with this in their personal life, and they're also dealing with this from the public um, with the patients and their caregivers. So I think a lot of it comes back to that kind of dynamic. So, I mean, it's in some ways, I, I, I'm going to, I'm making some assumptions here, but it's not surprising for me, I guess, that oncology centers and, 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 and those that deal with you know, pediatrics and children. I think in many cases are um, exemplars when it comes to people-centered care models and things like that. Um, I'm assuming that there's a, 
a kind of a, a true vocational sort of calling, right, for people who have strong senses of empathy and wanting to care into professions and centers like that. So what does something like the pandemic and, and all of this do to those sorts of people who've invested so much of their lives in a space like this and are, are facing this kind of a challenge? I think it's no doubt has been very, very difficult for many people. Um, and I think we'll be dealing with it for many months, if not years to come in terms of recruitment, retention, uh, people's passion for the profession. But at the end of the day, like you said, oncology and pediatrics have always tended to be a little bit of those niche areas that embraced person-centered care very early on and was in the philosophy and knit through kind of the fabric of how they delivered care. I think what we have to remember is maybe we were very expert at that in regular times, later on the pandemic, and we kind of swung everybody back to novice. For example, we've had to figure out and talk about a communication skills training lab for oncology for virtual care mm -hmm. and for um, virtual meetings. You know, when you take a very skilled, uh, high functioning kind of group of professionals and they now feel like they're novice at something, is uh, you feel a little uneven on your feet. You feel a little bit um, like your ground isn't solid that, that you've had for maybe decades of your career. Uh, so that I think that in itself is, you know, we have to embrace that though we may have taken this philosophy very early on, it's not, it's not static by any means. And we all need to keep learning together um, to evolve with our current models of care, team-based care, what that composition looks like, different patients' expectations of the healthcare system, for sure. The patients and the public have had a light shone on healthcare for the last two years. Mm -hmm. Before that, unless you had your personal experience or you cared for somebody in your family, healthcare is kind of, we know it's there, but it's not your first thought. This has been in your face for two full years. So the public's expectation of us has changed as well. And I've always said that Patient experience is sort of the delta between the patient's expectation of the system and their perceived reality when they come to us. Mm -hmm. And if that expectation shifts, then we have to shift uh, with what experience we're providing uh, in the center or, or not or virtually. So I think that that's where we need to keep nimble and we can't take our eye off that kind of goal of making sure that we're providing the top-notch people or person-centered care always. So our tagline here is exceptional care and exceptional experiences always, not sometimes. So I think that's where we have focused at the COVID patient experience table is even in light of all of this, how do we make sure that that's an always event? So I think, I think as you were sort of just describing, foundational to that is learning. Um, so 
which I think leads into the, the next sort of question that I wanted to sort of discuss. So what have we learned over the past two years? I mean, you've described lots of innovations and things, um, but what from what from all of that do we need to, you know, more holistically, not just within Princess Margaret, perhaps, um, what do we need to take from that and bring forward to make sure that health system that you know, everybody's looking at right now actually serves all Ontarians, all Canadians, the way we would want it to? For sure. I think that I, I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, but if we don't, if we don't care for the health of our providers, we're not going to hit that mark for the health of our, for Ontarians or Canadians um, in a way that is meaningful to them. Because if we don't sort of, you know, like the airplane analogy, if we don't put our oxygen mask on first, then we can't be there for our patients. And so I think that's why, you know, it's a little bit older now, but the quadruple aim in terms of ensuring that we're actually mm-hmm. looking explicitly looking at the health of and wellness of our provider team and our and our employees, I don't think we'll ever get and hit that, you know, mark of excelling in the in the patient experience or the person experience. And so I think this pandemic has really hit that home. Yeah, what might have been sort of a nice to have before has really become a need to have. The cornerstone of this, a need to have. And and that looks like equity, diversity and inclusion so that people feel safe and they believe their workplace is providing that uh, equity lens in terms of of hiring and support, um, we need to make sure that that what that looks like from a benefits perspective, uh, supporting this generation that is caring for young kids and elderly parents. What does that look like? People's people's expectations of an employer have shifted dramatically over the pandemic, outside of healthcare and within. So, what does that look like in terms of work life balance? Um, in terms of benefits packages, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, opportunities for for advancement and growth. So I think really the, you know, what, like you said, what was a nice to have is a absolutely critical need to have a very strong uh, and robust strategy around our people. And I think that's why it's beautiful that you guys call it people-centered care because without the, the, the person in the patient and the provider team mm-hmm. all together, now more than ever, I think that that is, is just paramount that we ensure both are taken care of. Uh, I think that's a, that's a powerful way for us to end. Um, but I do have one other question, I guess. So, <laughs> so yes, to, to add a, at the risk of finding a sort of a, a denouement here, but uh, uh, how will, you know, coming back to the patients and the, fa- the families, how will they re- reflect on this at the end of the day in terms of how we've come back out of this, right? Have, do they feel that the health system there is, is better served and has learned and improved as a result of the pandemic. Uh, it may be too soon for them to sort of provide a, you know, a, a report card on all that, but 
but but even within your own local experience, I mean, where do you think the the patients and their families are at at this point? I think it has evolved over the course of the pandemic. I think at the beginning, we had a lot of benefit of the doubt of the public for you know maybe being able to contact the center, a requisition not getting mailed to them. There was a lot of tolerance for that at the beginning of the pandemic, but I think that benefit of the doubt and the tolerance is long gone. And so if we don't bring ourselves back up to kind of pre-pandemic levels of expectation around that, I think our patients would not have very positive uh, reflection on the current state of our healthcare system. I mean, we've seen in the news being able to access your primary care provider, for example, and actually have an in-person appointment. I think, you know, it was the patient's outcry that actually shifted that where people have, you know, had to move back um, to more in-person care on the primary care side. So I think from my perspective, who's been in person-centered care for a long time, I think that this has given because we've had a spotlight on healthcare and people's expectations are different it will help us move the needle i think faster because of that delta i think patients expectations are going to come out of this higher not Mm -hmm. giving the benefit of the doubt so in a way though it may be more difficult on the on the hospital provider or health system side i think that the patients themselves and the public will help actually push a more person-centered system forward because of their expectations. And I think that's a win. That's a win. It might be very difficult and we might have a bigger delta between their perception and their expectation for the next little while while we clear out the backlog and kind of reemerge out of this kind of burnt out pandemic state. But I think it will be only for the better in the next, I don't know, probably one to two years it'll take for us to emerge from that. Well, I took a risk asking one more question, but I think that's it's even a, a better place to end, Leslie. So um, I, I hope we do learn from all of this. Um, and I, I do... I do think we have a lot to learn, though, from uh, the conversation you've shared with us today and the work of yourself and, and Princess Margaret. Um, thank you very much for uh, your own dedication through this and, and, and the great work that you guys are doing. So um, it's, uh, it, it's very powerful. So thank you for your time here today um, and sharing all of that. And thank you so much, Dale, for the invitation. Um, I couldn't, I actually can take almost no credit for anything stated in this podcast. We have an incredible team here at Princess Margaret that I'm very proud to work alongside, uh, as well as our our foundation that is hugely supportive of the center. So thank you for the invitation to share some of the the accomplishments of our wonderful team here. Well, thank you. Um, And look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.